Chapter 6, Part 4 of More Love to Thee, The Life and Letters of Elizabeth Prentice. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Painter. More Love to Thee, The Life and Letters of Elizabeth Prentice by George Prentice. Chapter 6, Part 4. Paris, sightseeing, a sick friend, London and its environs, the Queen and Prince Albert, the Isle of Wight, Homeward. On the 20th of February, the family gladly bade adieu to Switzerland and set out for Paris, arriving there on the morning of the 22nd. Mrs. Prentice was overjoyed to find herself once more in the world. On the 23rd, she wrote to Mrs. Smith, we have got here safe and sound with our little batch of invalids. They bore the journey very well, and are heartily glad to get into the world again. I am chock full of worldliness. All I think of is dress and fashion, and, on the whole, I don't know that you are worth writing to, as you were never in Paris and don't know the modes, and have perhaps foolishly left off hoops and open sleeves. I long, however, to hear from you and your new babby, and will try to keep a small spot swept clear of finery in my heart of hearts, where you can sit down when you've a mind. Our little fellow is getting to be a sweet-looking baby, with what his nurse calls a most gracieuse smile, if you can guess what kind of smile that is. But he is getting teeth and is looking delicate and soft, and your Hercules will knock him down, I know. But Paris was far from fulfilling to her or to the children the bright anticipations with which it had been looked forward to from lonely Genevrea. The weather could hardly have been worse. The house soon became another hospital, and sightseeing was a task. Friends, however, soon gathered about her, and by their hospitality and little kindnesses, relieved the tedium of the weary days. To Mrs. Stearns, Paris, March twenty-seventh, 1860. We pass many lonely hours in this big city and often long for you and Mr. Stearns to drop in or for a chance to run in to see dear mother. Getting nearer home makes it attractive. It works in the natural life just as it does in the spiritual in that respect. The weather is dreadful and has been for five months, scarcely one cheery day in that whole time. What with this and the children's ill health, I should not wonder if we left Paris as ignorant of its beauties as when we came. But I hope we shall not let that worry us too much, but rather be thankful that, bad as things are, they are not so bad as they might be. Our sympathies are greatly excited now for the Reverend Mr. Little, formerly of Bangor, who is in Paris, alone, friendless, and sick. If we could, by any miraculous power, stretch our scanty accommodations, we should certainly take him home and nurse him till his wife could be got here. You know, perhaps, that Mrs. Little is a daughter of Dr. Cornelius, and, when I recall the love and honour I was taught to feel towards him when I was a little girl, my heart quite yearns towards her, especially in this time of fearful anxiety about her husband. How insignificant my own trials look to me when I think of the sorrow which is probably before her. April the 26th. 
our patience is still tried by the cold, damp, and most unwholesome weather, which prevents the children from going to see anything. But we do not care so much for ourselves, or for them, as for poor Mr. Little, who is exceedingly feeble, chiefly confined to his room, and so forlorn in this strange, homeless land. While George was with him last evening, he had a bad fit of coughing, which resulted in the raising of a gill or so of blood. I know you will feel interested to hear about him, and will not wonder that our hearts are so full of sympathy for him and for his poor wife that we can hardly talk of anything else. He expects her in about a week. What a coming to Europe for her! How little those who stand on the shore to watch the departure of a foreign steamer know what they do when they envy its passengers. We buckled on our armour and began sightseeing the other day, going to see the Sainte-Chapelle and the galleries and museum of Louvre, among the rest. The Sainte-Chapelle is quite unlike anything I ever saw, and delighted us extremely. As to the Louvre, one needs several entire days to do justice to it, besides an amount of youthful enthusiasm and bodily strength which we do not possess. For, amid midnight watchings over our sick children and the like, the oil of gladness has about burned out, and we find sightseeing a weary task. May the 25th. It does seem as if George's preaching was listened to with more and more serious attention, and it may be seen long after he has rested from his labours on earth that he has done a good work here. We both are much interested in Professor Huntingdon's sermons, sent to us by Miss W. This is a great deal for me to say, because I do not like to read sermons. During the last three weeks, before Mr. and Mrs. Little left, we accomplished very little. It was not that we did or could do so very much for them, but they had nobody to depend on but us, and George was constantly going back and forth, trying to make them comfortable, arranging all their fares, etc. She had a weary, anxious two weeks here, and now has set her face homewards, not knowing that Mr. L. may sink before reaching America. It is a great comfort to us to have been able to soothe them somewhat as long as they stayed in Paris. George says it was worth coming here for that alone. I say we, but I mean George, for what was done, he did. The most I could do was to feel dreadfully for them. We are now to begin sightseeing again, and do all we can as speedily as possible, for only two weeks remain. The children are now pretty well. The baby is at that dangerous age when they are forever getting upon their feet and tumbling over backwards on their heads. M is the oddest little soul. Belle says she would rather go to a funeral than see all the shops in Paris, and when they are out, she can hardly keep her from following every such procession they meet. I asked her the last time they went out if she had had a nice walk. She said not very nice as she had only seen one pretty thing, and that was a police officer taking a man to jail. The idea of going to England is very pleasant, and, if we only keep tolerably well, I think it will do us all good. What is dear mother doing about all these times? I always think of her as sitting by the little work table in her room, knitting and watching the children. Give lots of love and kisses to her, and tell her we long to see her face to face. 
kiss all the children for us i suppose they'll let you boys and all and you may do as much for mr s if you want to good-bye on the seventh of june the family left paris for london a first visit to england that precious stone set in the silver sea is always an event full of interest to children of the new england puritans the sceptred isle is still in a sense their mother country and a thousand ancestral ties attract them to its shores there is no other spot on earth where so many lines of their history domestic and public meet and in london what familiar memories are for them associated with almost every old street and lane and building the winter and spring of eighteen sixty had been cold wet and cheerless well nigh beyond endurance and the summer proved hardly less dreary it rained nearly every day sometimes all day and all night the sun came out only at long intervals and then often but for a moment the atmosphere much of the time was like lead the moon and stars seemed to have left the sky even the english landscape in spite of its matchless verdure and beauty put on a forbidding aspect all nature indeed was under a cloud this added to her frail health made the summer a very trying one to mrs prentice and yet it afforded her not a little real delight some of her pleasantest days in europe were spent in england the following extracts are from a little journal kept by her in london june the tenth we went this morning to hear dr hamilton and were greatly edified by the sermon which was on the text hitherto hath the lord helped us in the afternoon we decided to go to westminster abbey it began to rain soon after we got out and we had a two miles walk through the mud the old abbey looked as much like its picture as it could but pictures cannot give a true idea of the grandeur of such a building we were a little late and every seat was full and many were standing as we had to do through the whole service the sermon struck me as a very ordinary affair though it was delivered by a lord but the music was so sweet performed for aught i know by angel for the choir was invisible and we stood surrounded by such monuments and covered by such a roof that we were not quite throwing away our time albert b dined with us and in the evening with one accord we went to hear dr hamilton again we had good seats and heard a most beautiful as well as edifying discourse on the first verses of the hundred and third psalm some of the images were very fine and the whole tone of the sermon was moderate sensible and serious i use these words advisedly for i had an impression that he was a flowery popular man whom i should not relish at the close of the service a little prayer meeting of half an hour was held and we came home satisfied with our first english sunday feeling some of our restless cravings already quieted as only contact with god's own people could quiet them eleventh went to see the crystal palace it proved a fine day and we took m with us none of us felt quite well but we enjoyed this new and beautiful scene for all that it is a little fairyland fourteenth went to westminster abbey and spent some time there on coming out 
we made a rapid but quite amusing passage through several courts where we saw numerous great personages in stiff little grey wigs. To my untrained, irreverent eyes, they all looked perfectly funny. George was greatly interested and edified. It has been raining and shining by turns all day, and is this evening very cold. Fifteenth. Another of those days which the English so euphoniously term nasty. Not knowing what else to do with it, we set off in search of number five, Sermon Lane, a house connected with a stereoscopic establishment in Paris, which we reached after many evolutions and convolutions, and found it to be a wholesale concern only. Pitying us for the trouble we had been at in seeking them, they let us have what views we wanted, but at higher prices than they sell them at Paris. We then went to the tract house, and while selecting French and other tracts, a gentleman came and asked for a quantity of the last hours of Dr. Payson. Sixteenth, went to the tower and had a most interesting visit there. We were particularly struck by some spots shown us by one of the wardens after the regular round had been gone through with and the other visitors dispersed, namely the cell where prisoners were confined with thumbscrews attached to elicit confession and the floor where lady jane gray was imprisoned we looked from the window where she saw her husband carried to execution and a was locked up in the room so as to be able to say she had been a prisoner in the tower seventeenth heard dr hamilton again met dr and mrs adams of new york there and had a most kind and cordial greeting from them dr a introduced us to dr hamilton in the evening, we went to hear Dr. Adams at Dr. H.'s church and came home quite proud of our countryman, who gave us a most excellent sermon. At the close of the service, Dr. H. invited us to take tea with him next week and introduced us to his wife, a young, quiet little lady, looking as unlike most of us American parsonesses as possible, her parochial cares being, perhaps, less weighty than ours. Eighteenth. Two things made this day open pleasantly. One was a decided attempt on the part of the sun to come out and shine. The second was Dr. Adams dropping in and taking breakfast with us. We also got letters from home and the news that Mr. Little had reached New York in safety. After lunch, George went off in glory to the House of Commons, hinting that he might stay there till tomorrow morning and begging for a night key to let himself in. The rest of us went to the zoological garden, which is much more ample and interesting than the Jardin de Plantes. 20th. Yesterday it poured in torrents all day, so that going out was not possible. Today we went out in the drops and between the drops to do a little shopping in the way of razors, scissors, knives, needles, and such like sharp and pointed things. We stepped into Nesbitt's, and took a view of little Susie, who looked as usual, bought a few books, subscribed to a library, coveted our neighbour's property, and came home covered with mud and mire. 22nd. Went out to Barnet to call on Miss Bird. On reaching the station, we found Miss B awaiting us with Phaeton and Pony. We were driven over a pretty three miles route to Hurst Cottage, where we were introduced to Mrs. Bird 
and a younger daughter, and I had a nice lunch, together with pleasant chat about America in general and ELS in particular. Miss Bird said she showed her likeness to a gentleman who is a great physiognomist and asked his opinion of her. He replied, she is a genius, a poetess, a Christian and a true wife and mother. We then went upstairs and looked at Miss B's little study, after which she took us to see the church in Hadley, a very old building dating back to 1494. It has been repaired and restored and is a beautiful little church. On leaving it, Miss Bird came with us a part of the way to the station and we got home in good season for dinner. The weather, true to its rule, could not last fine and so this evening it is raining again. 24th. No rain all day. Can it be true? George went in the morning to hear Mr Binney and A and I to Dr Hamilton's who preached a very good sermon on a favourite text of mine. I beseech thee, show me thy glory. In the evening, Dr. Patton of New York induced us to go with himself and wife to a meeting at a theatre three miles off. The Reverend Mr. Graham preached. It was an interesting but touching and saddening sight to look upon the congregation, to wonder why they came and whether they would come again and whether under those stolid and hardened faces there yet lay humanity. Many came with babies in their arms, who made themselves very much at home. Some were in dirty weekday clothes, some in rags and some in jags. Coming home, we passed the spot where John Rogers was burned, and that where in time of the plague dead bodies were thrown in frightful heaps into one grave. 25th. We took tea at Dr. Hamilton's, where we had a very pleasant evening meeting Dr. and Mrs. Adams, as well as all Dr. H.'s session. Dr. H. strikes one most agreeably and seems as genial and as full of life as a boy. 26th. Visited Windsor Castle with Dr. Adams and his party, ten of us in all. We drove afterward to see the country churchyard where Gray wrote his elegy and where he now lies buried. This was a most charming little trip and we all enjoyed it exceedingly. The young folks gathered leaves and flowers for their books. 29th. Last evening we had a nice time and a cup of tea with the Adamses. Today, another nasty day, they lunched with us, which broke up its gloom, and we went with them to see Sloane's Museum, a most interesting collection. We all enjoyed its novelty as well as its beauty. She also records the pleasure with which she visited the National Gallery, Madame Tussaud's collection, the British Museum, Richmond, the Kew Gardens, and Bunhill Fields Burying Ground, and, in particular, the grave of Mr John Bunyan. Not long before leaving London, she attended a Sunday evening service for the people in Westminster Abbey, which interested her deeply. It suggested or rather was the original of, the scene in The Story Lizzie Told. When we first got into that grand place, I was scared and thought they would drive us poor folks out. But when I looked round, most everybody was poor too. At last I saw some of them get down on their knees, and some shut their eyes, and some took off their hats and held them over their faces. Father couldn't, 
because he had me in his arms, and so I took it off and held it for him. What's it for? says I. Hush, says Father, the parson's praying. When I showed it to God, the room seemed full of him, but that's a small room. The church is a million and a billion times as big, isn't it, ma'am? But when the minister prayed, that big church seemed just as full as it could hold. Then all of a sudden they burst out a singing. Father showed me the card with large letters on it and says he, Sing, Lizzie, sing. And so I did. It was the first time in my life. The hymn said, Jesus, lover of my soul, let me to thy bosom fly. And I whispered to Father, Is Jesus God? Yes, yes, he said. Sing, Lizzie, sing. After the praying and the singing came the preaching. I heard every word. It was a beautiful story. It told how sorry Jesus was for us when we did wrong, bad things, and how glad he was when we were good and happy. It said we must tell him all our troubles and all our joys and feel sure that he knew just how to pity us because he had been a poor man three and thirty years on purpose to see how it seemed. The most stirring sight by far which she witnessed while in London was a review of 20,000 volunteers by the Queen in Hyde Park on the 23rd of June. She waited for it for several hours, standing much of the time upon a camp stool. As Her Majesty appeared, accompanied by Prince Albert, the curiosity of the immense crowd rose to such a pitch that every conceivable method was resorted to to catch a glimpse of the field. Men climbed on each other's shoulders, gave fabulous prices for chairs, boxes and baskets, raised their wives and sweethearts high in the air, and so by degrees our view was quite obstructed. The scene did not, perhaps in numbers or in the brilliant array of fashion, rank and beauty, surpass, nor in military pomp and circumstance did it equal a grand review she had witnessed not long before in the Champ de Mar but in other respects it was far more impressive. Among the volunteers were thousands of young men in whose veins ran the best and the most precious blood in England. And then, to an American wife and mother, Queen Victoria was a million times more interesting than Louis Napoleon. She stood then, as happily she still stands, at the head of the Christian womanhood of the world, and that in virtue not solely of her exalted position and influence, but of her rare personal and domestic virtues as well. She was then also at the very height of her felicity. How little she or anyone else in that thronging multitude dreamed that before the close of the coming year, the form of the noble prince who rode by her side, wearing an aspect of such manly beauty and content, and who was so worthy to be her husband, would lie mouldering in the grave. About the middle of July, Mrs Prentice, with her husband and children, left London for Ventnor on the Isle of Wight, where, in spite of cold and rainy weather, she passed two happy months. With the exception of Chateau Dirks, no place in Europe had provided to her such a haven of rest. Miss Scott, the hostess, was kindness itself, the Isle of Wight in summer is a little paradise, and in the vicinity of Ventnor are some of its loveliest scenes. 
her enjoyment was enhanced by the society of Mr. and Mrs. Jacob Abbott, who were then sojourning there. An excursion taken with Mr. Abbott was doubly attractive, for, as might be inferred from his books, he was one of the most genial and instructive of companions, whether for young or old. A pilgrimage to the home and grave of the dairyman's daughter, and to the grave of little Jane, and a day and night at Alum Bay were among the pleasantest incidents of the summer at Ventnor. Of the visit to little Jane's grave, she gives the following account in her journal. August the 10th. Today being unusually fine, we undertook our long-talked-of expedition to Brading. On reaching the churchyard, we asked the little boy who followed us in if he could point out little Jane's grave. He said he could, and led us at once to the spot. How little she dreamed that pilgrimages would be made to her grave. Our pygmy guide next conducted us to the gravestones, where her task was learned. How old are you, little fellow? I asked. Getting on to be five, he replied. And does everybody who comes here give you something? Some don't. That's very naughty of them, I continued. After all your trouble, they ought to give you something. A shrewd smile was his answer, and George then gave him some pennies. What do you do with your pennies? I asked. I put some in my pocket. And then what do you do? I save some up. And what then? My mother buys shoes when I get enough. She's going to buy me some soon with nails in them. These are dropping to pieces. No such thing. If that's the case, quoth George, I think I must give you some more pennies. Thank you said the boy. Do you see my sword? George then asked him if he went to church and to Sunday school. Oh, yes, and there was an organ, and they learned to sing psalms. And to love God, asked George. Yes, yes, he answered, but not with much unction, and so we turned about and came home. To Mrs. Stearns, Ventnor, August the 24th, 1860. As this is to be our last letter home, it ought to be a very brilliant one, but I'm sure it won't, and when I look back over the past two years and think how many stupid ones I have written you, I feel almost ashamed of myself. But on the other hand, I wonder I have written no duller ones, for our staying so long at a time in one place has given small chance for variety and description. It is raining and blowing at a rate that you, who are roasting at home, can hardly conceive. We agreed yesterday that if you are blindfolded and suddenly set down here and told to guess what season of the year it was, you would judge by your feelings and the wind roaring down the chimney that it was December. However disagreeable this may be, it is more invigorating than hot weather, and George and the children have all improved very much. George enjoys bathing and climbing the downs, and the children are out nearly all day when it does not rain. You may remember that the twilight is late in England, and even the baby is often out till half-past eight or nine. I just keep my head above water by having no cares or fatigue at night. I feel dreadfully that I am so helpless a creature, but I believe God keeps me so for my mortification and improvement, and that I ought to be willing to lead this good-for-nothing life if he chooses. We have had the pleasure of meeting Mr. and Mrs. Abbott here. They have gone now to spend the winter in Paris. Mrs. A. sent her love to you again and again, and I was very glad to meet her for your sake, 
as well as her own, and to know Mr. A. better than I did before, and it was very pleasant to George to chat with him. We walked together to see Shanklin Chime. A. went with us, and Mr. Abbott amused her so on the way that she came home quite dissatisfied with her stupid papa and mamma. We are talking of little else now but getting home, and it is a pity you could not take down the walls of our hidden souls and see the various wishes and feelings we have on the subject. I forgot to say how glad we were that you found George Prentice such a nice boy. I have always loved him for Abby's sake, and he certainly was worthy of the affection she felt for him as the most engaging child I ever knew. He is a thorough Prentice still, it seems. What is he going to be? You must feel queer to have a boy in college. It is like a strange dream. Our boys are two spunky little toads who need, or will need, all our energies to bring up. I have quite got my hand out. M is so good, and hate to begin. But goodbye, with love to mother, Mr. S, and the children. The family embarked at Cowes on the magnificent steamship Adriatic, September the 13th and, after a rough voyage, reached New York on the 24th of the same month. Old friends awaited their coming and welcomed them home again with open arms. It was a happy day for Mrs. Prentice, and in the abundance of its joy, she forgot the anxious and solitary months through which she had just been passing. She came back with four children instead of three. Her husband was, partially at least, restored to health, and she breathed once more her native air. End of chapter 6, part 4